Thank you, Brian. Wonderful. What a great morning so far. I'm ready. Hey, um, just got to, you know, get everything on the table. I feel a little rogue this morning. Um, couldn't just go on without mentioning that I wore sandals this morning for the first time ever in my life to church for the worship service. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, I just want you to know I'm still safe. I'm still committed. So next Sunday is Father's Day, and I've been working in the cracks and in between times on a special message for fathers. We're going to be in the parable of the two sons. That's not the parable that we associate with the prodigal son, but there actually is a parable of two sons. So we'll be looking at that, and I'm looking forward to it. A couple of books I I uh, just would recommend to you for, for Father's Day, uh, this one by Eric Metaxas, Seven Men and the Secrets to Their Greatness. You get it for your husband, your father, or even your son. This is just a really great book, and I highly encourage it. We've put a bunch in the, over in the cafe, and uh, if we run out today, we'll have some more for next week. This book, Fearless, about Adam Brown, who was a Navy SEAL. I get choked up <laughs> reading this book. I, Shelley looks over at me when I'm reading it, and I keep taking my glasses off to wipe my eyes. It, I, there hasn't been a time I've read this book that I haven't started weeping two, three, four times through the reading of it. It's so powerful. There's not a dull moment in it. I told Shelley yesterday I would like to buy about 50 of these and walk around and give them to every household in the neighborhood just as a gift from me to them. I highly recommend this book. I hope you'll go and get it. We've got some at the bookstore. And just so that uh, the evil one doesn't plant a deceptive thought in your head, we actually uh, kind of underwrite the cost of these. So they're actually less there than if you go and get them somewhere else. We want you to read these books. We know they'll encourage you. So get those and be looking forward to next week for Father's Day. We're going to have a great time together. Um, Let's turn to Matthew. We're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds today. And uh, we're going to be in Matthew 13, verses 24, starting in verse 24. This is sometimes called the parable of the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the darnel, the wheat and the weeds. I thought wheat was just kind of straightforward. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. Thursday was D-Day. 
was the uh, anniversary of D-Day, June 6th. The Normandy invasion. Before television, we got all of our breaking news by radio. And when the invasion on on Normandy began, this was during World War II, the, the Allied assault on the German forces, when that began, George Hicks, an American journalist, made his broadcast from the deck of the USS Ancon. And here are just a few things that he was saying as he was observing from the deck the invasion. And you might imagine gathered with a friend around a radio. This was before the age of transistor radios. Listening to George Hicks. You see the ships lying in all directions like black shadows on the gray sky. Now planes are going overhead. Heavy fire now just behind us. Bombs bursting on the shore along in the convoys. And as Americans listened, Hicks' words were punctuated and splashed with the sounds of heavy bombardment, sirens, low-flying planes, and shouting Americans were brought to the front lines of that battle by George Hicks. With all the chaos, with all the confusion, and with all the life and death struggle taking place at that very moment. Many called D-Day the decisive turning point in the war. The beginning of the end of Hitler's reign would be 11 months before the Germans surrendered. Yet to all, D-Day signaled the defeat of the Nazis and the end of Hitler's power. When Jesus announced, the time has come, God's kingdom has arrived. Repent. Believe in the good news. We forget how dramatic that announcement was for the Galileans of his day. It was a decisive turning point. Scott McKnight, in his book One Life, put it this way. Jesus' words brought waves of ordinary folks to their feet and awakened in them a reverie of hope. Because the story of God's kingdom began with the prophets. When Jesus comes and announces the kingdom, he takes up that story. Again, I like the way McKnight put it. He said, it's like a story in search of the one novelist who can tell the story perfectly. Jesus is the only one who can tell that story. And when Jesus uses the word kingdom together with the word now and the word arrived, Jesus was saying that the whole story was coming to the concluding chapter. Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom of God signaled 
the decisive invasion. Jesus came calling, recruiting, enlisting. Join me. Join the kingdom. That was his mission. Take up the weapons of God. He didn't say it like that, but that's what he was saying. That's what he was telling them. Take up the weapons of God. Be counted. Become a band of brothers. Today, we'd say brothers and sisters. Become a family. Become a community committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. But become a band of brothers in this kingdom battle, in this war we wage. Serve in a life and death struggle that counts, that matters, that makes a difference for all eternity. Follow me, he says. Pray with me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus saw things understood things that people didn't see and understand. They didn't hear the bombs. They didn't hear the low-flying planes. They didn't hear the yells and the hollers. Jesus did. Teaching. And in his parables, reporting what was actually happening. This is a simple story. I couldn't think of a simpler story. And yet, it carries a daring truth. It's clear that the master is opposed by an enemy. What the landowner, the master of the house, quite literally, what the master sows, the enemy seeks to sabotage. It's clear the wheat the master seeks to raise will be evident by what the master has sown and recognized by its growth, its fruit, what it bears. And it's clear that the master will preserve what he has sown and will separate and destroy that which the enemy has sown. Gauge the presence of God's kingdom. The presence of God's kingdom. Not by its opposition, but its growth, its fruit. Verse 26 is really a key. The two sowings, that that of the master and that of his enemy, the two sowings are known by their growth. One is fruitless and one is fruitful. And that tells me three things. And I'm going to ask them if they'll bring up the next slide and advance it so all three points are up there. His presence excites spiritual hostility. His presence emerges in its subjects and its presence, that is the presence of the kingdom, 
expects the judgment. In verse 28, the master of the house says, an enemy has done this. The presence of the kingdom does excite spiritual hostility. Because although it's a simple story, it reveals a daring truth. This is about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says that right at the beginning. The kingdom is like. The kingdom is like. And this parable illumines and explains the kingdom. And the first thing that we see is that after the master has sown his field, an enemy comes at night that is undetected and unbeknown. And he sows the field with a weed. Now we know it's darnell or the tare. It's, it's a weed that when it grows, it looks just like wheat. In fact, you can't even tell them apart until the wheat bears that fruit. The darnel or the tear does not grow any fruit. And so once they've grown up and borne this fruit, then that which does not bear fruit is easily identified as the weed. And we need to understand, Jesus is saying, the ministry, uh, what I am doing, my announcement of the kingdom, my calling of people to follow me, to serve with me, to pray with me, to live with me, to enter the kingdom, that is going to be opposed. It is opposed by an enemy. And we know that from Jesus' own ministry. For example, his own mother and family struggled with what he was doing. People came all the way up to Galilee, that is down from Jerusalem and north to Galilee, to hear Jesus, and they opposed him. Some thought that his exercise of power, his exercising not exercising, but actual exercising of evil spirits from people, was the work of the devil. And they accused him of trading on the power of Satan. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 35, in verse 23, Jesus responds to their charges and says, How can Satan cast out Satan? There's a lot buried in that. How can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm his enemy. I'm breaking in. In fact, that's his next point. He says, how can a man enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods? Unless he first binds that man of that house that is strong. Jesus is saying, I have bound the strong man Satan. I'm plundering his goods. I'm invading his territory. I'm advancing on his control. And I'm penetrating and breaking it down. And then in verse, that's in verse 26 and 27 of Mark 3. 
You see, the evil one, the devil, is real. In fact, in private, to his own disciples, Jesus explained this parable. It's found in Matthew chapter 13, starting at verse 36. And in verse 38, he says, the evil one is the devil. The evil one, the enemy that sowed the weeds in the field. In the simple story I was telling you, I was telling you about a much deeper truth. There's an enemy that opposes me, and you as my followers will be opposed too. Anyone who enters the kingdom will be opposed. It's just so important for us to have a spiritual outlook a spiritual worldview in which we realize that there are, there are greater forces at work than in this atheist material atheism in which there's nothing supernatural. Everything's just biological. And that's the way our world is moving you need to be aware that there's a much greater battle at work. It's a simple story. It's a daring truth. But you'll just be plain hoodwinked if you're not aware that Jesus is revealing there is an enemy. But I am stronger than your enemy. In fact, Paul and Peter both have a lot to say about this enemy. And we won't take the time to explore all that the New Testament, all that Paul, all that Peter have to say. But in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, if you've never read that, I really encourage you, if you need to, to look in the front of your Bible. Find that book, that letter written by Paul called Ephesians. Go to the sixth chapter and read the whole chapter. But in verses 10 and following, Paul has some powerful things to say. And he says... He says, in fact, he says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. In the Lord's power, we withstand the schemes of the devil, the wiles of the devil. The devil is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. He's not God's equal. He's not Jesus equal. He can't be in more than one place at one time. But he has his minions, his lackeys. But more than that, he can sow deceit and deception. He can pervert, contort, and twist God's word. Just as he did with Jesus when he was tempted in Matthew chapter 4. Satan doesn't have to go after a lot of people personally or send people after him because they're so taken with the deception, with the folly, and with the foolishness that he's sown. That's what Paul is saying. And he goes on to say in those verses right there, verse 12 and following, we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Sure, there are people that represent his opinions, his views, his philosophy, his, his teachings. 
But they're not the enemy. They are loved by God. Jesus Christ went to the cross for each and every one, atheist and full-fledged man-eating disciple of Jesus alike. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Keep that in mind. Because then you'll fight with the weapons of spiritual strength and power. Peter said, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion and seeking someone to devour. I encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount in the light of this enemy, this opposition, this hostility. Just read chapter 5, 1 to 13, and how Jesus mentions the kingdom of God and how those who suffer or are persecuted for the kingdom of God are blessed. And the word blessed in the Bible is not just kind of a, some religious contortion of happiness. It is a true blessing. It is a true joy and fulfillment, contentment, and happiness. Wear that for a while. Think about that. A second thing that emerges from this simple story that's a daring truth is that the presence of the kingdom emerges in its subjects, that is, in the wheat. And I use the word subject because even though our translations are trying to make the Scripture a little more readable for us in the 21st century, the word is sons. Sons in Jesus' interpretation to his disciples when he explained the parable more fully. In fact, in verse 38 and 39, he talks about the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one, the devil. Do you see that? Well, you don't see the word sons. You see people, probably, or maybe children. That's okay, but I want you to appreciate when the word son is used, Just like when Barnabas is called son of encouragement, or in the Bible someone's called a son of peace, it it means that this person who is called a son is a chip off the old block. You know, it's not emphasizing so much a biological or genetic connection as much as it is that this person is a full-on, full-fledged, manifestation of this this ideal, like encouragement or peace. Jesus, in John chapter 8, was accused of being insane by some of his religious contemporaries. They called him, he called them sons of the devil. And you know why? He said, because you do what your father does. That is, if you're a child of the devil, if you're a son of the daughter, a daughter or a son, just so you get the point, paternity was not established by a blood test. It was established by the desires of your heart. If they matched the devil, he'd say, you're a son of the devil. If your philosophy matched that of the devil, the evil one, he'd say, you're a son of the devil. And so what Jesus is emphasizing to his disciples here is that you can tell Whether you're sown by me or sown by the evil one, by the fruit you bear. 
by the things that come out of your mouth, the things that you adore, the things that you go after, the things you talk about, the things that occupy you, the things that characterize you. This really challenges me every time. I don't stand above the Bible. I'm under it, just like you. Whenever Jesus talks like this, it hits me. Because I think there was a time today where I wasn't thinking like your child, like your disciple, like a member of your family, your kingdom. That gets to me. Can you believe something have saving faith if it doesn't make a difference? Can you, can you say that you really believe something if it doesn't make a difference? Do actions speak louder than words? The father origin I was reminded of this week. <clears throat> he lived from 185 to 254. He wrote some... Some say 800, some say that it's more likely he wrote 2,000 works all about Jesus, commentaries on the Bible, uh, some of the, did some of the first textual criticism work to collect in the, the manuscripts because of different copyists and so forth. He was a great early Christian scholar. He was asked to defend Christianity against Celsus. Celsus was a pagan. Celsus wrote a book called The True Doctrine, or The True Word, which was kind of a parody of Jesus, the Logos, the Word. He made so much... He was kind of like a Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or a contemporary atheist. And if you've read any of their works or you follow kind of their blogs or something, it, you'll take a beating as a Christian. You'll, they'll make you feel like a fool for believing what they would call fairy tales. Celsus was the first in a long line, and he wrote this book, and Origen was asked to defend Christianity. And, and Origen said, at first, I don't want to do that. He objected because he felt a book against Celsus was not the most powerful defense of Jesus and Christianity. This is what he said, because he did go on to write the book, but this is what he put in the preface. Now Jesus is always being falsely accused, he said. He remains silent, that is, Jesus remains silent and does not answer with his voice. You see, he believes that if Jesus wanted to defend himself, he could do it. But this is the powerful thing that caught my heart. He says, he makes his defense in the lives of his genuine disciples. For their lives cry out the real facts and defeat all false charges. He went on to say, I would therefore go so far as to say that the defense which you ask me to compose will weaken the force of the defense that is in the mere facts and detract from the power of Jesus. 
That's a powerful thing to hear. You and I are the defense of Jesus. You and I are the evidence of his power. You and I are the evidence of the presence of the kingdom of God. There's a tremendous spiritual battle going on today. And that was alluded to. And scripture isn't surprised. It says it's going to get worse. I read a blog by Peter Inns over a couple of days. He's a Bible scholar, theologian, has a blog asking people to tell him why they're leaving the church. It's titled, Five Challenges to Staying Christian and Moving Forward Anyway. He's trying to get some dialogue going with some people who've turned their backs. And he's asking, why? Why are you leaving the church? And I understand some of you may be saying, well, maybe they never knew the Lord really in the first place. Let's just wipe that aside and get to the point I want to make. Here's the issue. He wants to know from these people, why is it you're struggling with following Jesus Christ in the 21st century? And there were five things brought up. But the number four, which I have to emphasize this morning, is this. How Christians behave. That's their problem. How Christians behave. Here were some of the responses that he sub... In other words, this is what he sees in the church. Tribalism. Insider-outsider thinking. Hypocrisy. Misuse of power. Feeling misled, sheltered, lied to by leaders. A history of immoral and unchristian behavior toward others. And then Peter Inns elaborated. He said, people, quote, experience too often that Christians exhibit the same behaviors as everyone else. Which is more than simply an unfortunate situation. People, I'm still quoting him, people see this as evidence that Christianity is not true. It's more a crutch or a lingering relic of antiquity than a present spiritual reality. That thought, they're just doing what they'd be doing anyway really gripped my heart because there was a man, it was at, um, it was down in Southern California. I was a a new believer and I went to their college group because I was in college at the time. And uh, he, he just, he laid it on the line to me and he asked this question and I've never forgotten it. Are you doing what you'd be doing anyway? And if the answer in honesty is yes, then the follow-up question is, why? Where's Jesus in the midst of this? People have got to see the reality of the gospel in our lives the power of Jesus Christ. And if that's not happening, then let's get that taken care of. 
Let's be different. Let's be a band of brothers. Let's answer the call. Let's take up the weapons of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control, forgiveness, gentleness. Let's live out this gospel. Let's do it together. Let's lock arms and live for Jesus Christ. And the third thing is the presence expects the judgment. This is a simple story with a daring truth. The master will preserve what he's sown by separating and destroying what the enemy has sown. This is a hard, hard truth. But Jesus had more to say about judgment and hell than any other person or voice in all the Bible If you'll advance the next slide for me, here are four books I would highly recommend. I've got this book, Erasing Hell, that you could pick up today if you'd like. I'd really encourage you. I think this is the best in terms of a total book given to the subject. I think it'll really work for you and encourage you and help you. The other books I would also highly recommend. If I had to pick three, I would pick The the One Life by Scott McKnight. He has a, a special chapter on heaven and hell. The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis is exceptional. His eighth chapter is given to the subject, but the whole book is worth a read. These books will really encourage you, so I recommend them to you. And then, Is Hell for Real? And that also is very, very good. So I just, you're going to have to do more study on your own, but I want to read some things to you. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Matthew 7. And we're going to look at some verses really quick. Verse 13, or you can just listen to me. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it, enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then look over at verses 19 and 20. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Turn over to chapter 10. Verse 28, and we're not even looking at all of them. I just want to give you a feel because we don't always read these. And do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then verse 32, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And then turn over to chapter 18. Not too many more, at least this morning. Verses 8 and 9. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. 
And then over to chapter 25, verse 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. And he continues. Our society may wish to ignore what Jesus had to say about judgment and hell. But it's central to Jesus' teaching. And it is central to his understanding of human responsibility. It's hard to talk about judgment and hell. I don't personally like it, but I'm sticking with Jesus. Judgment and hell affect me personally. It magnifies the gravity of my sin. It magnifies the gravity of God's grace. It magnifies the gravity of Jesus' death. It magnifies the gravity of telling others about Jesus Christ. There is a death after death and a life after life, and both are depicted in verses 39 through 44 when Jesus talks privately to his disciples. And I find that interesting. I don't know if it should become a blueprint for us, But when he told the simple story, he didn't go into greater detail about hell and judgment there. But obviously, from what we just briefly read, he had a lot to say when he taught. But if you would like to read what he has to say, read verses 39 through 44. God, this simple story does reveal, and Jesus himself reveals further in his explanation, is alone qualified to judge. But he does. And I just want to close with something Brian referenced. Because in listening to young atheist Alex Taunton, uh, as Brian already mentioned, mentioned Christopher Hitchens, who sometimes when I hear him debate or re- have read his blogs in the past, I think, My goodness, man, how can you talk this way? And yet, he showed Taunton a tenderness and a respect because he said, you believe it. He has no patience for phonies. Am I sometimes phony? Yes. If I look over the life of my Christian, I've done everything wrong at one time or another. But I use it as a stepping stone because I know it's a challenge to the authenticity of my faith and my following in Jesus Christ. And His grace allows me to get up and keep after Him, not to give up and quit. And I stay in His Word. That's how I stay energized. That's how I stay close to Him. That's how I keep loving Him. His Word inspires me. It challenges me. There's nothing like it on earth or in the history of written literature. It talks about truths and visions and dreams I've never heard anywhere. Don't neglect it. Sorry. But I just... (laughs) 
Counton goes on to say, without fail, our former church attending students that they're talking to express similar feelings for those Christians who unabashedly, unashamedly embraced biblical teaching. Michael, a political science major at Dartmouth, told us that he is drawn to Christians like that, adding, I really can't consider a Christian good, moral person, if he isn't trying to convert me. As surprising as it may seem, he continues, this sentiment is not as unusual as you might think. It finds resonance in the well-publicized comments of Penn Gillette, the atheist delusionist and comedian. I don't respect people, he writes, who don't proselytize. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? That's pendulette. Comments like these should cause us to examine ourselves. I've been doing a lot of... I'm I'm about a week ahead of you in soul searching. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain, I'm going to stop with this. In the long run, he says, the end of chapter 8, where he's been talking about hell. In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? to wipe out their past sins, and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But He has done so on the cross. Do you want God to leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what He does. In order to rouse modern minds to an understanding of the issues, I ventured to introduce in this chapter, he writes, a picture of the truly bad person. But when the picture has done that work, the sooner it is forgotten, the better. In all discussions of hell, we should keep steadily before our eyes the possible damnation, not of our enemies, not of our friends, since both these disturb the reason, but of ourselves." This chapter is not about your wife or son, not about Nero or Judas Iscariot. It's about you and me. Will you stand with me? Jesus may have been standing on the edge of a field when he shared this simple story. Imagine that you're in the crowd and you've been following him enough to hear him invite you, to hear him call you. You don't have to have it all figured out. You do it by depending on him, by trusting him. When I first became a Christian, I just started with this simple mantra, this simple idea, and I try to follow it to this very day. Lord, how can I do this by faith in you? That's it. How can I do this by faith in you, by trusting in you, by depending on you? If we'll do that, we'll become a power 
in Visalia. People will start seeing the difference and hearing about Jesus. And it will make a difference for all eternity on earth and in heaven. This morning I'm going to pray and after I say amen, if you'd like to pray with me or the pastoral staff, the elders and their wives, we're going to be down here. We'd like to pray with you. We all need to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, for your son, the power of your spirit in our lives through Jesus Christ. He who died and has risen and is seated at your right hand. Father, may we live by faith in you. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you.